Please turn with me to Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 to 14. You can also read along in your bulletins on page 8. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. This is the word of the Lord. A few weeks ago, we started a new series. And uh, we've been saying that just as a church planner, starting a, a new church, realize a lot of us grew up at least hearing a semblance of some of the stories that are told in the Bible. And we never really got to understand the real meaning behind these lessons that we've learned. And so these disparate lessons become awfully confusing at times, and we're still trying to figure out what do they really mean. I mean, we know the story, we've heard names and places, but what do these stories really mean? What's at the heart, the center of these stories? So uh, that's, what the, that's what really gave birth to this series, and it's a good time because we're starting in the summertime, and, and it's good for us to chew on some of these passages. Today we're going to be looking at the life of Abraham. And uh, it's important to look into the life of Abraham. If you haven't already, if you haven't ever done that, each of the three most prominent religions in the world consider Abraham the father of their faith. And so it's important to study him. What's he about? Why is he in the Bible? Abraham's story teaches us how to live a big life. How to live a big life. And it's because Abraham lived on the basis of the call of God. Now, at the end of chapter 21 in Genesis, Abraham who was asked by God to leave his home, to leave, which meant death, certain death in that culture because there was no internet, there were no cars, there was nothing back then. And so to leave your village was certain death. To go into the unknown, it was unheard of. But he left. And you start to see in chapter 21, Abraham is settling down. And we know that because he plants a tree. That's what's happening there. But chapter 22, this is the emotional and spiritual climax of Abraham's life. It's one of the best told narratives of all of ancient literature. So it's very important that we look at this passage, but it can be confusing. I mean, just reading this, it can be kind of appalling in some ways. It can be confusing, so we need to understand this text, or if we don't understand it, it's going to stay confusing, and it's going to be very disturbing. So we're going to begin here, verse 1. God calls out to Abraham. Verses 1 and 2, God calls Abraham. Abraham! Verses 11 and 12. Abraham, Abraham, that's what he says. So you see in verses 1 and 11, there's kind of a, they're the bookends of this passage. 
And they begin and end the same exact way. It's like a, a sandwich in between. And generally, the sandwich in between is the meat. And what that means is if verse 1 is about the calling of God and verse 11 is about the calling of God, then what's in between is how did Abraham live out this calling? How did he obey the call of God? That's what we're going to learn here. We're going to see how Abraham lived out a call because that is how you live a big life. And it's all in the context of what here? Celebration? Joy? A party? Fitting for July 4th weekend? It's in the context of trial and suffering and death. There are three things we're going to learn here today. One, what is a call? What does suffering look like? Two, what does it feel like? And thirdly, then how do you live it out? How do you endure suffering and live out the call of God? What do trials look like? What do trials feel like? How do you endure it? First, we're going to look at what the call or what a trial actually looks like in our lives. The first two verses, you see the call. And verse 2 really mimics the summary of Abraham's whole life. If you think about what Abraham's life is about, it's really about two things. I mean, there's a lot of things. But the call can be summed up in two bookends. Um, go, right? Leave everything that you knew. Leave, leave everything that you believed. And then number two, I want you to sacrifice. I want you to offer up your son. God says, Isaac's the one you love, right? Isaac's the one you love. In other words, what he's saying is, he says, I want you to take your son, your only son, whom you love. In other words, Isaac is the center of your life. He's your only son. In ancient times, what that means is all the family's wealth, all the family's wealth was centralized around your firstborn son. And so the firstborn son got all the love. He got all the status. He was doted on. He was given all the attention. In a sense, because there were no banks back then, you didn't have a 401k back then. There were no retirement accounts back then. Your firstborn son inherited everything that you had, and he really was the one that was going to prolong your legacy. And so Isaac was the sum of Abraham's sense of worth. He was, he was everything. He, was, he represented Abraham's entire net worth. And so Abraham loved Isaac. He waited for decades for Isaac. And so God's saying to Isaac, Isaac, God's saying to Abraham, Isaac is your motivational center. He's the reason why you're really doing everything you do. I want you to give him up. I want you to sacrifice him. Isaac is your sense of worth. I want you to surrender him up. Isaac is your source of security. Isaac is your source of status. I want you to let him go. I want you to give him up to me. What does that mean? It means this. A Christian it's not someone who just hears the call one time and he obeys that one time. Obedience is not a one-time deal for a Christian. It's a pattern of life. It's a pattern of life that you build on. You're really building a pattern of your life around the call of God. And so what happens is you're hearing it and then rehearing it and then rehearing it and then rehearing it and reapplying it and reapplying it and reapplying it and reapplying it over and over and over again. If you look at Abraham, the call's what made him. The call made him. But rehearing that call over and over in his life, it challenges him, it matures him, it builds him. He became the father of faith. That's Abraham. Over and over, I want you to go. I want you to leave. I want you to offer up. If you forget that, that life is all about rehearing the call and re-obeying the call over and over and over again, if you forget that, life is never going to make sense to you. Life is always going to go awry in life. How do you live a big life? You have to process your life through the lens of that calling. That's what you have to do. I mean, maybe life is ripping things away from you, things that you treasured, things that you, you savored in your life, that you, were, you desire so deeply in your life. They're very important to you. Or maybe hearing the call, but if you functionally ignore the call, it's not until you experience devastating loss. That's when you learn the call. That's when you hear the call again to offer up. It takes a certain kind of humility to hear that. It takes a certain kind of courage to live that out. To sacrifice your only son. For Abraham, it was a life-defining moment. That's what, that's what it looks like, suffering. 
That's what a call sounds like. It's, it's reorienting your motivational center to go, to leave, to offer up. Now, what does it actually look like? One, we're going to look at this text here. When you're suffering, it's usually a very private experience. You're generally alone. If you think about it, the deepest sufferings in your life, you will suffer alone. In this passage, God's speaking only to Abraham. You don't see anybody else he's talking to. It's just Abraham. Abraham's the only one taking action. Abraham is the only one privately suffering. I mean, he's married. Isaac has a mother, and yet Abraham is suffering. Later on, you see Abraham. He's walking with Isaac, the very person, his dear son. He's walking with him. They're talking to each other, and yet Abraham is dying inside. He's alone. I mean, even if he shared the story with somebody else, who could understand at that moment what Abraham's going through? We've all suffered like that. Some of you are suffering like that. Who can possibly understand what Abraham's going through? It would be to try to explain that. It would be too confusing, too painful, too overwhelming. I mean, there are certain kinds of suffering that are so draining, so grueling, so painful. You don't want to use that little bit of energy you have left just to get by every day. You don't want to use that to have to explain yourself to somebody else, right? It's a very private experience. It's between God and you. It's between God and Abraham. The second thing we see is that in real suffering, life kind of starts to slow down. It's grueling. It's why you have so little energy because it's just wear and tear and wear and tear. If you look at the pace of this test here, this trial, verses 3 to 13, I'm going to walk this through with you very quickly. Verse 3, Abraham's up in the morning. You know why he's up in the, so early in the morning? Because he probably couldn't sleep the night before. Would you have been able to sleep the night before, knowing that you're giving up your one and only son? Abraham's up all night. He's up very early in the morning. He sets off. And then you notice from here on in, the details of this narrative become very granular, very, very detail-oriented. Even the mundane things that you never would care about in a story, it's almost like it's a run-on sentence It's being told. He saddles his donkey. He takes two servants with him. He cut enough wood for the journey. In verse 4, the journey took three days. And he sees the place from a distance. In verse 5, he's having a conversation with his servants. He tells them to stay as he goes with his son. In verse 6, he takes the wood, places it on his son Isaac, right? While he takes the fire and he takes the knife. That's what's happening. Verses 7 to 8, Isaac and he are having a conversation. It's the only conversation in the entire narrative. Where is the lamb? God's going to provide the lamb. Verse 9, to get to the place, Abraham is building the altar. And then you see the details. He's binding his son. He's prepping him for the sacrifice. And, and then verse 10 to 12, Abraham is just about, this is the action moment. This is the detail that you want to know. This is the end point. He's about to sacrifice his son when God calls to him. Abraham, Abraham. Why those granular details? I mean, there's a lot of details that are extraneous here. What's going on here? Because in ancient times, fiction would never be told like this. The ancient genre, fiction would never be told like this. You only included the action moments. You know why? My theory is because they didn't have a lot of paper back then. And I'm being serious. They didn't have word processors back then. They didn't have paper. Things were passed down orally because they didn't write a whole lot. And so you only included the details that you needed to include, right? And so fiction would never have been told this way. This would have been a boring dialogue to read about. This is how you know that the narrative couldn't have been fiction. I mean, in fact, those, those movies and the stories where fictional details where, that are kind of realistic, real to life, where they include a lot of details that you don't really care about to make the story seem more real and plausible, that genre didn't exist until only a couple hundred years ago. And so this, that genre of fiction didn't even exist in this day. This is how you know that this narrative was real. It wasn't, it's a true story. It wasn't something that was just made up. These details were included to give you a sense of Abraham's agony. 
what he was feeling at the time, what he was experiencing at the time. It's palpable. Those details put together as you kind of walk the journey with Abraham, that three-day journey, it's a grueling journey. And imagine for three days, you guys go on a hike. There are people going on a hike this weekend. You go on a hike. You go on a hike for about one or two hours. You're, you're pretty sweaty. You're pretty beat. This journey took three days. And the entire part of those three days, Abraham's thinking one thing. He's going to sacrifice his son. So he's dying inside. It's grueling. It feels like time is slowed down only to like a, a turtle-like pace. Very, very slow. Everything is slowed down. Time has slowed down. And so we know that suffering is very, very private. And when you endure deep suffering in your life, life just slows down. You don't think about anything else, whether you're at work. Things just kind of come to a halt, right? But the third thing is what happens during that time span. There's intensity inside. There's tremendous intensity. There's tremendous focus. As detailed as this account is, significant details are actually left out. So as detailed as it is, there's a lot of questions we have. For instance, where was his wife? For instance, where was he going? Where exactly did he go? Why are these details left out? And it's because while we're going through this process, we want to, what the author is trying to do is get you to understand what Abraham is going through in his suffering and get you to ask these questions and yet you kind of have to put it aside because that's what Abraham had to do. He had a ton of questions. He learned to trust. He learned to trust. Verse 2 shows you the intensity. It shows you the focus. God tells Abraham, take your son, your only son, in Hebrew, that is a Hebrew doublet. Whenever you're looking at somebody and talking to them and duplicating the address, your son, take your son, your only son. There is emotional content there, emotional intensity. It's almost like God is grieving. He's broken and he's grieving and he's weeping as he's talking to Abraham. Abraham, and he's weeping and he's saying, I want you to sacrifice your son. Later on, verse 11, what does he say? Abraham, Abraham. He's crying, he's weeping. There's emotional intensity there. That's what's going on. It's almost as if God is very, very heavy here. What is suffering? What is a trial? It's something you experience that you know is really between you and God. And so it's hard and it's painful and life comes to a halt. And... It's so intense, that pressure is there. It shatters you. It compresses you. It quakes your life. It shakes you up. Now, friends, some of you, some of you are suffering like this. And if you're not suffering, if you haven't suffered like this, you will. Friends, I have to tell you this as a pastor. You will suffer like this one day. Suffering is normative. It's normal. It's a part of life. But do you get this? That's how you know. How did Abraham know? How was he able to stay honest with himself? How did he know that he was truly called unless he actually obeyed? Now, you can respond with bitterness and confusion and despair or you can respond with wisdom because you know that in the middle of the suffering, while you're going through it, you know God is actually speaking into you. He's speaking into you. That's what it is. That's what suffering looks like. Now, what does it feel like? The answer is, look at Abraham. There's agony. Just straight, raw agony. Abraham is offering up the unthinkable. Abraham is sacrificing the unimaginable. Isaac was not a little child. Isaac was most likely, at the least, in his later teens. He was probably more likely in his like, early to mid-young adult years, late 20s, early 30s. And so imagine somebody like your age, the relationship, if you had a good relationship with your father, some of you, you're absolutely just doted on by your father, that's Abraham doting on Isaac at your age. And this is decades of relationship, decades of attachment. And so for Abraham to part with this, with this knowledge, 
Imagine the agony and the pain. But verse 2, he gets up early. He gets up early. Probably stayed up all night, but you never see him arguing with God. You don't see him fighting with God. You don't see him debating with God. You don't even hear him asking, why? Why is that? And it's because he understood. The text doesn't mention how he felt. It's not because the author is being insensitive. He doesn't talk about how Abraham felt. The author has depicted this narrative so that you can experience vicariously through these words what Abraham is experiencing. Where is his wife? Notice, he doesn't even tell Sarah what's, what's about to happen. Sarah is not even mentioned in the entire narrative. This is purely between Abraham and God. Verse 3, he cuts the wood for the sacrifice by himself. Later on, verse 10, he takes the knife and the fire by himself. The wood, the knife, the fire, he's handling all the things. He is owning this calling. He's doing it all by himself. He doesn't get his servants to cut the wood, start the fire, carry it with them. He takes the fire. He takes the knife. He gets the wood. He cuts the wood. He's owning it. Verse 4, the trip takes three days. That's everyday grueling, everyday intensity, everyday focus, everyday agony. Why the agony? Notice, God doesn't tell Abraham, Abraham, I want you to murder your son. That's not what he says. Because if that's what happened, Abraham wouldn't have done it. He wouldn't have done it. And if it was about murder and Abraham just wanted to be obedient, he, why take the journey? He would have taken a knife, stabbed his son to death in his home. That would have been a gruesome, a very gruesome depiction of human frailty. So you have to notice that when I, growing up when I heard this text, when I read this passage, there are a lot of things that didn't make sense to me. And uh, I thought this was a test. I read it as if this passage was a test to see if Abraham would obey. And so uh, when you look at it like that and you try to moralize it like that, you can get into a lot of trouble because what that means is even if, you know, uh, it's a way of oppressing people and controlling people, almost brainwashing people. And this, this text didn't sit well with me. But that's not what this text is about. This passage is not a test. You can't moralize this story to teach about obedience. Because if this test was about obedience, Abraham would have just done it right there, right? He would have committed murder. That would have gone against God's character, right? There's a lot of things wrong with that. But God doesn't say, Abraham, kill your son. God uses a very special phrase. He says, Abraham, I want you to offer him up. I want you to sacrifice your son as a burnt offering. And Abraham, he doesn't argue. He doesn't debate. He knows. He understands. What's it mean? Isaac was the hope of his family. That's why Abraham put so much on his son. Everything that Abraham owned was centered around Isaac as his firstborn. That's that's why in the Bible, from the beginning of history, in the Bible, God always demanded the firstborn. If you look earlier in the passage in uh, the book in Genesis, you have Cain and Abel, two brothers. Cain is a kind of like a farmer, and Abel is kind of like a herder, a shepherd. They both give what? The first fruits. The first of all the crops. The first of all the, of all the animals, the livestock. God always demands the firstborn. Firstborn cattle, firstborn harvest. Your firstborn son always belonged to God. He says, God knows, and laid it from the beginning, I own these things. So offering Isaac was more than just about losing his son. Abraham was called to sacrifice the ultimate representation of all of his wealth, all of his status, all of his worth. To forfeit Isaac was to forfeit, on one hand, Abraham's sense of worth. We talked about that, his net worth. But it's to also forfeit the promise of God. God promised through Abraham, through Abraham's descendants, that he would bless his family, bless the nation, and nations subsequent to Abraham through him. And so God promising Abraham that he would bless him through his children, and Abraham had only one son, Incredibly confusing for Abraham because to forfeit that son 
is to forfeit that promise. God had promised to redeem the world, this broken world filled with evil. He said, Abraham, through your family, through your line, I will redeem everything that's wrong with the world, everything that's broken with the world. That's what I'm going to do. And so Abraham, on one hand, he understood that law of primogeniture, and God was using that law, that cultural law in his day, right, to bring through this lesson. But that's also why God didn't ask Abraham to sacrifice his wife. It wouldn't have made any sense, right? But in ancient times, why did Abraham understand? Why didn't he argue? Abraham knew that everybody owed a sin debt to God. The world is broken. The world is evil. So everybody owed a sin debt. And at any point in time, God could call back his debts. He could call it back. And that's why he owned the firstborn of everything. He owned your firstborn livestock. Because one day, what he's saying is, I'm going to call my debts back. I'm going to reel it in. They belong to me. So when God is saying, I want you to sacrifice your son, he's calling his debts in. That's why he didn't argue. Because Abraham understood that to experience and know the call of God is to know that we belong to him, that everything that Abraham has belongs to God. And it's represented, it's centralized around the firstborn son. God was using that cultural law. And so to call in his son is to call in the sin debt, and we owe, we all owe God. Abraham understood that. And so the debt of sin was always placed on the firstborn, knowing that God could one day call that debt in. He could call it in. And so that's why Isaac had to pay. That's why only Isaac could pay. Isaac was the one and only son of Abraham. Only he could pay. You can't moralize the story because this story isn't about unconditional obedience. Now, if you wanted to create a certain type of application, as an application, you can say maybe it's a little bit about unconditional obedience to God. When God calls, you answer. It's irresistible and it's unconditional. Yes, certainly an application. But it's about this narrative is not about obedience. This narrative is about a sin debt that had to be paid. And it was placed on the firstborn son. And Abraham understood that. All the generations prior to Abraham understood that. And all the generations after Abraham understood that. And God, in this case, was calling it in. Abraham was merely returning to God what was rightfully his. It doesn't go against the promise of God. It actually fulfills the promise of God. He's saying, you want to be forgiven? I need your son. Your one and only son. God told Abraham, one of your sons, one of your descendants from your family will redeem everything that is wrong with the world, every evil, every sin, all the brokenness. So when God says, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, and sacrifice him to me, Abraham understood. And he reasoned that this is how his family would be redeemed. This is how the world and its brokenness will be redeemed. Isaac is the son that must be consumed for his sins. And in the process, what's God doing? There's pain. There's agony. But God is taking that. That pain and agony is driven by the fact that Abraham idolized his son. His son meant everything to him. So on one hand, he knew he had to let him go. And on the other hand, he didn't want to let him go. God is calling his debts in. That's suffering. Suffering points to centralizing our heart, our motivations, everything that we desire around that one, those one or two things in our lives that we desperately need in order to make us feel okay. It's our sense of worth, our net sense of worth. How do you identify what an idol is in your life? Because in this process, God, as he's calling his sin debt in, he's removing the one thing that is mastering Abraham, it's actually that thing that Abraham loves ends up controlling him. It's enslaving him. It's mastering him. And so even though he's the father, he's owned by Isaac. You see that? And so God on one hand is calling in his sin debt. On the other hand, is freeing Abraham from this idol. How do you identify what it is an idol in your life? And the best way to do that 
is to stop, be honest with yourself, and ask yourself, what is your worst nightmare? What are the things that keep you up at night? What are the things that you so desperately and will tirelessly work for and dote on in your life? I cannot have this. I cannot live life without this in my life. If this thing were to happen in my life, my life is no longer worth living. What will absolutely devastate you in your life? It could be irreparable damage to your career, irreparable damage to your health or to your own looks or your figure, your beauty. Irreparable damage to your relationships, or maybe that one particular relationship, that one desire that you have. Maybe it's loss of your spouse, brokenness in your marriage, in your family, the loss of your children. Abraham's life is just ripping apart because he's about to be separated from his son. He's about to lose the center of his worth, the center of his life. But he understood the debt. He understood the depth of his sin and that God was calling his debt sin. So he knew he had to pay. Somebody had to pay. Isaac must pay. And so for Abraham, losing his firstborn son, losing his wealth, losing his legacy, his relationship with God was worth far more than all those things. And so even losing God's promise, Abraham wasn't coming to God to get things. Why do you go to God? Why do you pray to God? What do you pray for? That's probably another way you can identify an idol in your life. What are the things that you pray for so ardently and so eagerly? More than you tithe, more than you attend church, more than you value community. But you pray for these things that you want. You're going to God to get things. You're not going to God to get God. For Abraham, he was willing to let go of the things. He was willing to let go of the promise because he was not willing to let go of God. God has promised the redemption, the promise of fulfilling the redemption of the world through him. He was willing to let that go for his own relationship with the Father. Now, we all experience, or you're going to experience, times of utter misery in your life, when you just feel like you're just crawling on the floor because you don't have the strength because of that agony, and you're quaking because the foundations of your life have been shaken, maybe even shattered, broken, just cracked in half, what's this passage teach us? Your suffering, and I want to make sure that I don't say this in any trite way. Listen, I'm 43. That means I've suffered a bit. I suffered. I've been through some stuff. And you, if you have not been through stuff yet, you will. You're getting there. Because if I've been through this many times, at this age, you're going to get there. Your suffering does not mean that God is absent. It actually means that God is present. Abraham understood that this suffering was aligned with the call of God. That's why God was calling the debt sin. That's why God is freeing him. It's almost like surgery. He was freeing him from his idols. And the reason why we know that is because verse 5, he says, he tells his servants to stay behind, and he says, my son and I are going to go. And what does he say? We will worship. We will worship. He said, what he's saying is everything Everything is about what we do. Everything we do is an act of worship. What is worship? Worship is ascribing ultimate value, ultimate worth, placing your entire worth into something because it is so worthy. That's what worship is. The word worship comes from the Latin word worth-ship, meaning this thing is worth all of my life. So when you place something on earth, your worth and your net value, you're saying my worth is meaningless. I'm, I, there's nothing meaningful in my life if I don't have this thing. That is worship. That is idolatry if it's not God. That's what he's saying. And so, yes, God is saying, yes, I know you treasure your son. Abraham's saying, yes, I treasure my son. Yes, I'm in just crawling pain 
I'm in agony. Yes, I'm grieving. But nothing is worth more than my relationship with my Father. Trust God's Word. When real suffering happens, remember that God is present, grieving. Is He happy here? Is He frolicking? In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve had just committed the sin, the federal sin from which all our sins are born. And yet, God is walking in the cool of the day in the garden. Is that what he's doing here? Here, he's weeping. He's emotional. He's suffering with Abraham. This is not a trite request. If you love me, you'll do this. That's not what he's saying. This is not about obedience. He's just grieving with Abraham. Trust God's word. God is speaking into you in your suffering. Wisdom, and sometimes it takes a while. I'm not saying it's going to happen overnight. Wisdom means that at some point in your suffering, you start to understand the call, that all of this is a part of God's call. It may take a few months. It may take years. It's proportional probably to the amount of suffering there is. But wisdom itself, God's presence will give you wisdom to look to his word and obey. Because maybe he's removing in you, from you, a spiritual tumor. Something that if it continues to grow, it's going to fill you with pride, fill you with arrogance, fill you with just no need for God. And so you sacrifice the one thing you need for something that's lesser. And that's going to kill you and destroy you. Your life is going to go awry. That's what an idol is. Something that's apart from God that you're saying you can't live without when really your relationship with God is the only thing that you can't live without. And so you're going under the knife, and it's painful, and things are uncertain, and you don't know how it's going to turn out, and it feels like that part of the death that you die every day in that journey is the uncertainty. You don't know how things are going to turn out. If you knew how things were going to turn out, it wouldn't be suffering. But when you go under the knife, it all depends on who's holding the knife. If the person that's holding the knife is somebody who's out to get you and hurt you, you will be bitter, you will be resentful, you will be filled with pride and hate and anger, and you will act and live rebelliously with no thought for who you're honoring or dishonoring. You will not care. But if you're under the knife of a skilled surgeon, you will trust. You will obey. Doctor tells you, I want you to show up at 6 a.m. I don't know why surgeons... They always tell you to arrive at 6 a.m. Sometimes the surgery doesn't happen until like 10. So you're just sitting there, the three days journey, four hours. You could have been sleeping until like 9.30 and then just show up and go under the knife. But no, because the prep takes like what, 15 minutes? But you're sitting there and you're just, you're just waiting. And those minutes just tick slowly. But you're under the hand and the knife of a very skillful surgeon. And he's not going to kill you. He's trying to save you. That's what he's doing. What's it look like? What's it feel like? How do you obey it? Verses 7 to 8. The only recorded conversation between Isaac and Abraham in the Bible, the entire Bible, the only required, uh, recorded conversation. What's, what do they say to each other? Isaac says, Father? Remember, he's in his late 20s, early 30s. You don't think he has a brain? Um, there's fire, there's wood, there's no lamb. Father's tying him up, right? Where's the lamb? Isaac knows you need a lamb for a sacrifice. Verse 2, it says that Abraham goes to Moriah. Moriah is a very particular place. It's where the temple of Jerusalem Later on, will be built there, right? That's where New Testament priests and high priests, Old Testament priests and high priests, that's where they sacrificed their lambs. All these sacrifices are done. And so God is calling Abraham to come to this very place. Abraham is being the high priest. And so God is saying, I want you to sacrifice, make a sacrifice here where the temple will eventually be built. And so Isaac is right. Where is the lamb? Abraham says, God will make a way. 
God will provide. Abraham's trusting. Verse 5, we will worship. He doesn't say we will worship and I will come back down the mountain. He says we will worship on the mountain and we will come back down. Abraham trusts to the end he knew. Either A, the justice of God will prevail and Isaac will pay the price and God will still make a way or the mercy of God, the promise of God will prevail if God makes another way. But one thing Abraham couldn't reconcile is if I sacrifice my son, how can I reconcile the justice of God against sin and the promise that he made with me? How will that be fulfilled? How can I reconcile the judgment of God on one hand and the mercy of God on the other hand? But somehow he believed both of them have to be upheld because God promised. And he never goes back on his word, so he trusted. No choice but to trust. That there had to be both justice and mercy. But how? There has to be both judgment and yet promise. But how? Somehow both would have to be upheld. Verse 14. Later on, at the end, this is the epilogue. Abraham names the mountain. What does he name the mountain? God will provide. Not I have provided. God provides. It means Abraham finally understood the gospel. He got it. In Hebrews chapter 11, which is a, a passage where the author looks back on all the, uh, the patriarchs of faith, if you look at verses 17 to 19, Basically, what the author says is that Abraham believed that even if he sacrificed his son, God would bring Isaac back from the dead. That's how he reasoned, that maybe I have to sacrifice him, but God will bring him back. Somehow, God will fulfill that promise that he made, that he would redeem the world through him, through his descendants. Verses 10 to 12 in this passage. Abraham's about to sacrifice his son. God stops him. Instead, God provides a ram caught in the thicket caught in the woods. He's caught there. It's a substitute. God provided. Why did he provide? Now think about this. If God made Abraham sacrifice his son, then salvation would have been earned. Salvation would have been earned by your obedience. So here's Abraham. He obeys, and God stops him. Why? Why does he do it? Because salvation belongs to the Lord. God stopped Abraham because salvation is not earned through our obedience, but only by God's provision, only by sheer grace. The entire narrative, this entire narrative was about Abraham's personal experience of God's grace and God's promise and God's salvation. Up until this point, it was all good. Well, it wasn't all good. He waited for decades. He received Isaac, and he's just doting on Isaac, and he's just loving on Isaac, and everything is so good and so beautiful, and, and he's prospering. His flocks are growing. His wealth is increasing. God has been so faithful and so good. It's easy when we're doing that to be caught up in thinking that it must be because we've obeyed. And so there's this wealth that's growing up with Abraham. The entire narrative but for the first time in his life, really, God has personally, deeply, soulfully experienced the gospel, grace, salvation. It would be a pattern for the rest of Abraham's life. It would be a pattern for the rest of our lives. God will provide. This is how the justice of God will be reconciled to the promise of God. God will provide. God will make a substitute. God had made a way. This is how the debt of sin will be paid to justify. This is how the debt of sin will be paid to satisfy the judgment of God. And this is how we are spared. That's the promise of God. This is how we, the rest of the world, will be redeemed. God said, I promise to redeem the world through you. All the brokenness, all the sin, all the evil, this is how it's going to be done. God will provide a lamb for the sacrifice, and he does. He does provide that lamb. In John chapter 1, the first book of John, first chapter in the gospel according to John, when John the Baptist first encounters Jesus Christ, what does he say? 
John chapter 1, verse 29, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In other words, John the Baptist, he saw the promise of Abraham, the promise of God to Abraham, finally fulfilled when he encountered Jesus Christ for the first time. He says, I get it. This is the Lamb of God. He has come to pay the ultimate sin debt for me and for the world. Abraham names that place, the Lord provides. It's a place of the temple. But it's also in the vicinity of Calvary, another mountain, where another sacrifice would be made for the world. Isaac carried his own wood for the sacrifice up the mountain. Centuries later, who's walking up that mountain? Jesus Christ is carrying his own cross, his wood. Jesus is journeying up the cross, to the cross. Jesus is carrying his own wood for the sacrifice. Isaac risked his father's fire. He risked his father's knife. But on the cross, Jesus didn't just risk the fire of God's wrath. He didn't just risk the knife of God's wrath. He took it all in, took in all the wrath took in all the judgment on the cross. He spilled his blood on the cross. That's why his blood had to be spilled. It was a sacrifice. His blood had to be spilled. Isaiah chapter 53 says, he was pierced for our transgressions. That means that Jesus Christ took the fire and the knife of God's wrath and his judgment, and he took it all until all his blood was spilled. God gave Abraham a small picture. He said, you're in agony. Abraham, I feel you. That's why he's weeping. Because he is giving Abraham a picture, just a glimpse of his agony when he will come to sacrifice his own son. God says to Abraham, take your son your only son. There is that emotional intensity, that emotional quaking, but on the cross, there was a real earthquake. The ground shook. The rocks split. The holy temple curtain tore from top to bottom. And Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken you? What do you see? The emotional intensity. My God, my God, I've been forsaking. What he's saying is, this is now the ultimate trial this is the ultimate pressure. This is just between me and God. He's talking only to God. He says, this is between me and God. It's private between me and God. The ultimate trial, the ultimate pressure, the ultimate agony, and God is agonizing on the cross. He's being separated and torn apart from his son. Abraham agonized three days just at the thought of losing his son. God has lost his son. So the mutual agony of the separation, hell, you know what hell is? Separation from God, eternally. That means on the cross, because of our sins, Jesus took the penalty and was separated from God. He experienced the fire and the wrath and the knife of hell on the wood of judgment once and for all. And he said, it is finished. You know what that is? It's a financial term. It means the debt is paid. The sin debt paid. I endured it perfectly. This is the invoice. It has been redeemed. I obeyed it perfectly. The debt is paid in full, and I've paid it all. Look at the agony of Abraham. And you experience just a glimpse of the agony that God experienced when Jesus was on the cross. Jesus Christ on the cross, there, there's the justice of God. Jesus on the cross, there, he is a descendant of Abraham. So Isaac lives, and the descendant of Abraham is Jesus. There is the promise of God fulfilled on the cross. On the cross, you have the justice of God, and the mercy of God. You have the judgment of God and the promise of God, the love of God, the grace of God. Jesus Christ was disowned so that we could be owned by God. Jesus Christ paid the price so that we could be bought by God. 
Jesus Christ lost the promise of God so that we could have the promise of God. And he obeyed it fully. He obeyed it gladly for us, for you. Will you trust him? Will you own your suffering? Trust his word. In the midst of your trial and your suffering, look to the cross. Trust that God is present because he was absent. Jesus Christ cried out, I'm forsaken. Trust that God is present in your life and he is calling you. That's how you endure trial. That's how you endure the suffering. That's how you live a big life. You know why? Because when you're able to free yourself from the things that are enslaving you, those things, you say, if I can't, I cannot live my life without this. All my life I worked hard for this one thing and now I've lost it. My life is meaningless. When you free yourself from that, those nightmares in your life, there's freedom, tremendous freedom. That will allow you to take risks that you will never have been able to take before. That gives you courage. So on one hand, the gospel humbles us because we see the cost. And Jesus paid that price. We didn't earn it. We're not entitled to it. We don't deserve it. We just receive it by grace. That humbles us. On the other hand, Jesus paid for you. And you'll never be able to lose it. That gives you tremendous courage and confidence and poise in the midst of suffering because you know that God has not abandoned you. In fact, he is for you and he understands your agony and he is present and calling you through that brokenness. That's what he's doing. And that's what gives you joy. You know those martyrs in the ancient church? You think they went to, you know, you think when they were arrested, they were like, oh my gosh, what's my mom going to say? You think that's what they said? That's not what they said. They sang hymns as they were being baked alive. Do you understand that? What gave them that poise? What gave them that poise? Because they knew, they understood that God was not happy, grieving beside them tortured, bleeding, dead. That they would be renewed through that brokenness and that God would make a way for them. God did not spare his own son for us. There's your freedom from your idols. Trust him. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus just to take him at his word just to rest upon his promise and to know, thus saith the Lord. Let's pray.